Welcome to Chasing Encounters, a podcast about stories, languages, cultures, and identities. We highlight diversity and intersectionality in contemporary society through respectful and thought-provoking conversations. Hello, everybody. This is Yesid Ortega, and this is a Chasing Encounters podcast. We are having a summer special today with obviously a special person. Thank you for coming today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to be here. All right. So the first question that we're going to ask, and I always usually ask, the, how do I pronounce your name? Uh, thank you. Yes. Yeah, so uh, my name is Katie Entegar. Um, my last name is Slovenian. So Ooh. there you go. My grandfather apparently changed it from Entahar to Entegar. Oh, really? Yep. Um, yep. And um, I am an expat uh, USer who just moved up to Toronto three weeks ago to start a job at University of Toronto. Interesting. That's great. Uh, so you're an American, right? Correct. Born and raised in the United States. Born and raised in the U.S. And you just got a job here at the University of Toronto. Yes, very luckily I did. Sweet. Mm -hmm. How do you like it so far? I really like Toronto. Um, I had been here for a couple of adult education conferences mm -hmm. in the last few years and just really liked uh, meeting the, the folks here. Uh, people are welcoming. They love to have conversations. Nice. Um, and being somebody who is principally from New York City, where things are very fast, folks talk in a very transactional way, um, it's nice to be in Toronto where people take a little more time to talk to you and share their favorite spots and give you advice. Um, so it's, it's been great. Awesome. So uh, I think one of the things that got me interested in the, in the work that you do is because you mentioned uh, adult education and perhaps some of the people in our audience don't know what adult education is. Maybe you can enlighten us. What, what did you mean, or in, the, in your experience, what is this idea of adult education? Oh, that's such a great question. I feel like we're, you're going to ask me these great questions, and I'm going to come back and say, well, <laughs> let's think about what we mean by adults. We can, um, we can, yeah, <laughs> and it, that, that's the whole purpose of this. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's discuss this, like sure. this, spill the onion. Let's do it, yeah. What, so, is, what is adult? Right. What do you mean by an adult? <laughs> Well, so just to come back to your original question, this idea of adult education, I mean, breaking this down into its pieces, right? So the term adult, of course, is very complex because, um, you know, it's, it's legally defined in different ways in different countries. Sometimes it's developmental. Sometimes it's based on how we think about, like, educación versus education, which is upbringing versus formal schooling. Um, so those boundary lines are real tricky, but just to put a general idea around it, so adult ed is, is kind of education and learning and meaning making beyond uh, traditional schooling years. So we could say it, we might say it that way. Um, and adult education, I think, takes place in all different kinds of contexts. So mm. there are formal contexts, which usually are based on institutions, formal curricula, then there's non-formal contexts, which are things like community-based organizations, non-profit organizations, um, you know, different kinds of spaces like that. And then there's informal education, which is literally what you and I are doing right now, where we're teaching each other new ideas and, and playing with those meaning-making processes. Oh, interesting. So that would be informal. That would be informal. Or non-formal. What, what would be the difference between the non-formal mm -hmm. and the informal? Non-formal means not necessarily bound within an institution with a traditional oh. classroom, but there's still a teacher that's involved and usually a curriculum. That's the non-formal definition. Mm. Informal means spontaneous learning, um, self-study, autodidacticism, things like that. 
um, all different kinds of contexts that really take place outside of certain four walled institutions and classrooms. Oh, this is so interesting. Thank you so much. I didn't know about this idea of the formality, the informality, and the non-formality sure. of mm -hmm. education. Is there anything outside these three boundaries, the formality, the informality, and the non-formality? That's a great question because what I wanted to say too is that I think that's based on a Western model, right? This Western conceptualization of formal versus informal, non-formal. Um, so if we think about uh, conceptualizations of communities of practice, for example, which is Jean Lave's concept from the late 90s, she talks about um, apprenticeship models. So she studied um, shoemakers in uh, Liberia, for example, people who were apprenticed into social ways of learning and um, bodies of knowledge that took years to build. So this is something that's non-Western centric and doesn't really necessarily fall under the heading of or the divisions of formal, non-formal, or informal, at least as from where I'm sitting. No, no, no you're totally right. And, and, and I'm still going to have more questions to come back to the idea of that apprenticeship model in a second. Mm -hmm. But before moving into that <clears throat> and going back to adult education so I can have things clear, an adult, I'm assuming, because you were mentioning the, the, the traditional school year, and I'm assuming the traditional school year means kindergarten, primary, secondary, high school, traditional years and mm -hmm. traditional age, I guess. It is expected that a, a person that is 16, 17, maybe 18 years old, finishes high school and then sort of moves to, I don't know, undergrad or postgraduate, whatever mm -hmm, it is, mm -hmm. right? That's, like, that's a traditional mode of education. Mm -hmm. That would be in North America, in places like Japan, for example, mm. you're still considered a child until the age of 20. Mm -hmm. Just one example. So it really it really does, I think those those boundary lines really depend, but that's a general idea. No, yeah, that's the idea that I had. See, I yeah. didn't know. That's one of the beauties of this podcast that we learn from people who have experience from different parts of the world uh, sure. that I like. <clears throat> mm -hmm. But what I was trying to ask is adult edu education refers to education outside that tradition, meaning my mother, 70-something years old, taking primary classes, primary mm -hmm. school classes. Right. That's Absolutely. what adult education is. I would advocate that it is at adult education. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And that can happen in some of the forms that you were saying could be in a formal way and mm -hmm. in an informal way or in a non-formal way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So in your experience, where adult education it is located in, in, in the world that you have done, in the formal, in the informal, or in the non-formal, or in the three of them? Or right. So my work, work is almost exclusively in the non-formal context, okay, non -formal. with an exception that I have taught um, undergraduate students in formal contexts. Okay. And actually, I've also taught graduate students. So I have, as an educator, I've taught in formal and non-formal context. Mm -hmm. And I've also done um, tutoring as well, which I would consider to be more informal. Mm -hmm. um, so tutoring, working with undocumented students in New York City, um, youth who are moving through the schooling system into adulthood, so transitioning into post-secondary mm -hmm. context as well. But right. primarily my scholarship and my education is in non-formal context. Non-formal context. Non-formal, so non-profit organizations principally. Adult ESL or EAL as we say in Canada. Right. Yeah, no, 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 it got me thinking because, so that means that a lot of adults who are obviously are, are, are outside of this age that I was mentioning earlier, get their education at an institution, a formal, a formal institution, but it's outside of these traditional boundaries, right? I'm assuming like a college maybe, 
That's right. Or sometimes probably, right. I don't know, mm -hmm. um, high school is teaching adult education, for example, as well. High school, so this, where we, this is where we get into the interesting point about the boundaries in terms of age, mm -hmm. right? So anything like a school itself is a formal institutional context. Right. Um, so if you're talking about formal um, adult ed, you'd talk about right, institutions of higher education, mm -hmm. colleges, universities, mm -hmm. graduate programs, mm -hmm. things like that. Nice. And then if we're talking about vocational training programs, um, where, again, it might not have the same sort of trappings, and that's going to be a non-formal context. Mm -hmm. Adult language teaching, which is where I've focused my work, that's a non-formal context right. as well. No, interesting, because now I want to dig a little bit more into your work. I know you finished the, your PhD recently, and now you're studying your professional work here at the University of Toronto, so maybe you'll let us know about the, the research that you did before coming to Toronto and a little bit of the details that you want to share with us. Absolutely, yeah. So so as I've mentioned, my background as an adult um, is EAL is what's used in, yeah, in Canada, yeah, right? Yeah, so thank you. So I taught um, for, I've taught for about 16 years in the adult EAL context in uh, New York and Boston, um, as well as in Madrid, Spain. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, I had that background before I started my master's program in Boston and then before I did my PhD. Um, and so, you know, for years I sort of took it for granted that I'd be teaching people English, migrant people who came to the States mm -hmm. to, to learn a language in order to improve their job prospects, in order to continue with their academic study, uh, in order to be able to advocate for their child at school or bring their child to the doctor to participate in their communities. Mm. So I, I kind of had it from a little bit of a non-political perspective, just starting with sure. language teaching. Sure. And then in my master's, we started reading about Paulo Freire, of course, and then um, some other, other perspectives. And I started to really think about what politics are involved in the language education process. Like, what does it mean for me as a white, um, U.S.-born person with a certain yeah. class background yeah. um, to, to be teaching certain groups of people who are often racialized, people who come from different um, educational backgrounds, um, and who are, are not first language speakers of English, for example. Mm -hmm. And we should also talk about what kind of English, right? Exactly, so it's, it's standardized exactly. American English is what I'm referring to. Because right. um, there's no neutral language, which I know you and I could talk about for three hours <laughs> another true, time. True, 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 true. <laughs> so, so, and then by the time I got to my, my PhD application process, I was looking into, um, really thinking about an experience I had at a nonprofit organization in Boston where I was teaching certified nursing assistant trainees, people who are going to be going to people's homes to take care of um, elders and people recovering from illness. And a part of the curriculum I was given was a page called How to Be a Good Subordinate. I know. Did very, you take a photo of this? I wanted to so bad, but I had a guilty conscience and I didn't. There, I, it's, I, I think sure. it's out there, yes. I tried to find it later. It anyway. Come. Yes. So I, I looked into that and I said, you know what, it's time to start thinking about this and doing some work. And so, you know, I started my PhD um, with this idea in mind of, of thinking about um, first language practices in the EAL classroom. So what kind of language are we teaching? What kind of pedagogy, meaning teaching and learning processes are there? And then I also really started to get interested in, and I'm still very interested in now, what contributions do the students make in the shaping of the material that's being taught, the way it's being taught, which again, I'm, I'm going to refer to the idea of pedagogy, um, and what kind, of, what kind of goals and outcomes the students have for themselves, in addition to thinking about themselves as political participants in the educational process, not just passive recipients of education. 
So my dissertation really, really problematized that idea because there is a construction of kind of the good immigrant. And of course, mm-hmm. you can you can imagine the scare quotes. I mean, you can see them, but I have scare quotes around those terms <laughs> uh, uh, of the good immigrant to, to the States when I was studying this as someone who is grateful to be there, who is passive, quiescent. Yeah. Um, yeah. And will and will receive that education. And instead, I really pushed back on that. I think, hopefully, successfully, and asked questions around contribution, um, uh, the idea of silence in the EAL classroom, mm. um, the processes of of uh, inclusion. You know, inc- being inclusive in EAL classrooms, and kind of asked questions about kind of what's that white liberal version of inclusive practice, and mm. how can we think about that differently, mm. and. Um, and just thinking about pedagogy itself. So the idea of right. meaning making with students versus for students. You know, am I handing my students a package, kind of a, pro- a product, uh, in what Freire, Freire, uh, Paulo Freire would call the kind of banking model? Or am I co-constructing this process? Am I collaborating or building a coalitional project with students in the language learning process itself? It's something, it's really good what you're talking about because it resonates also with my with my um, doctoral work mm. my mm-hmm. research is related to the pedagogical approaches that teachers are using to welcome their students yes to co-construct yes the the curriculum themselves but I did my 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 research in Latin America in Colombia mm-hmm. so it might be a little bit different from what you experience I was the teacher but actually what I did in my in my research was to do interactive focus groups with students so I actually presented mm-hmm. my research um, invited and invited students who were at the center um, mm-hmm. to join me in interactive focus groups and so for the listeners who don't know what that is there are focus groups I think a lot of us know what those are it's kind of like a group interview okay. but an interactive focus group is a, meth- a specific methodology where the students or the participants generally speaking kind of take over and can control the themes and directions of the conversation um, it's a really it's 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 not a perfect process of course but it's a negotiation of priorities and content I would say so um, I came in with a couple of different questions and ideas. Um, and then the um, five participants who joined me in the end were all students of the center. Um, mm-hmm. I had been a volunteer teacher there for a year to right. build up that relationship, but I was none of their teacher in the end. See, um, it's so interesting that you talk about these um, con- um, group interviews because in my research I also had a similar methodology, but I, w- I did not create it. I was with the students, and the students themselves actually told me, but teacher, this, this doesn't look like an interview or a focus group. This is more like a charla mm-hmm. or conversation in right. Spanish. And that's how I call it in my dissertation, a charla as opposed to a control team interview. So I led the students to sort of guide the conversation because I, I realized that I mean, I challenge a little bit uh, forms of doing research because I don't think it's about me, it's about them and what they do and what they perceive and how they perceive the world. Because at the end of the day, uh, it's about them and the pedagogical approaches is for them and the teachers, the work that they, they did was for them. And that's why my next question is about the pedagogical approaches that you were talking about earlier that has to be more like sort of like culture-based, more inclusive in the class or in your observations or in the, in the work that you, do, uh, that you did with your participants. 
what, if you can give us an example of how a, 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 a pedagogical approach look like, like what kind of activities or projects uh, are sort of meaningful to tap into this idea of cultural inclusivity, mm -hmm. inclu inclusion in the ESL classroom? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. So, so this is something that I'm looking forward to kind of constructing and developing over the next couple of years because uh -huh. For me, part of what I was trying to theorize during my PhD was was this idea of pedagogy itself. You know, mm -hmm. there's there's a very popular form of pedagogy that uh, I think we all know about and generally really support the idea of culturally responsive pedagogy. Mm -hmm. um, and Gloria Ladson Billings had be beautiful ideas in '94 and continued to develop them up until the last few years. And I I, I have no intention of detracting from it. Um, one of the points that I brought up, though, in my dissertation was kind of really asking questions about who that pedagogy was developed for and whether mm -hmm. that was going to be appropriate for adult learners. Um, Latson Billings and Paris Nalim and other scholars who did, um, who developed culturally sustaining pedagogy, mm -hmm. other kinds of pedagogy, tended to focus on K through 12 contexts. Mm -hmm. And so what I tried to do is propose a different way of thinking about pedagogy that was more meaningful for adult learners who were active contributors who had lived with different kind of backgrounds and experiences and who were coming as transnational people to contribute differently in the classroom. So in 2016, I published a paper um, about a kind of a novel concept I proposed called diaculturalist pedagogy, um, which I... <laughs> so I want to hear, I want to sure. hear about your diaculture. Thank you, yeah. So the diaculturalist pedagogy is basically... It's a proposal of a different approach to pedagogy, wherein the teacher does not come in assuming that there are certain ways of participating, uh, certain um, kind of ways of feeling included, um, certain ways of learning even, and meaning making that the students have, but that the premise is that the students and the teachers will agree upon this together, and then this will involve, um, you know, things like community agreements in the classroom, which is a feminist and an indigenous proposal, actually, although I didn't construct I didn't use those theoretical orientations when I wrote the paper. Um, you know, being able to argue um, what it means to f participate in the sense of what forms participation and contribution take place in. Can I contribute by being silent? Can I contribute by doing different kinds of things? Um, what does safety mean? What does, at the core of this, are relationships at the core of this? Or is it about kind of producing certain things for standards? Um, and actually something you and I talked about before this conversation right now, which is uh, what are the goals for our language practice or language learning? So you were actually bringing up um, this idea of translanguaging, right? And this proposal that um, some people might advocate for um, pushing against a white Western-centric um, English standardized English discourse, which favors one form of, like my form of language, what I was raised with versus other forms. Uh, you asked an interesting question, which is, what about the student's perspective? What about their idea that in a material way, I need to survive, I need to get a job, I need to make money for my family. And so under diaculturalist pedagogy, what I propose is that there's a negotiation there. There's going to be a tension that is productive and important and an ongoing a set of agreements that are generated. So both things can be held in the same hand, which is extremely hard to do, but it's pushing back on this white saviorist perspective, which is something that's important. It's not about me as a teacher, professor, individual, it's about the, the community, as you mentioned earlier mm -hmm. today. So what you're proposing is a sort of a cultural sustaining pedagogies for higher education. 
could be higher education, could be nonprofits, community-based learning, church-based learning. But not learning. K to 12. Oh, I haven't tried already, it there yet. Because it's already there. I mean, the, you know, you, you said it. Jan, Django Paris ways. and Alim already been working on cultural sustaining pedagogies right. in K-12. So I think, I think, it's I, think, I, think I think I like the idea of focusing mm -hmm. on something that has not necessarily been done. I know right. somebody has already been working on mm -hmm. that for a little. I don't know because you're the expert. But I think moving into that direction, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think that makes sense, especially because uh, I'm working also with a, collaborating with a, teacher who teaches ESL to adult in adult, mm -hmm. adult ESL, how do you call it, adult ESL students. Mm -hmm. So we are both working in actually pedagogical approaches on, uh, for anti-black racism right now. So Great. We, we, are, yeah. we, are, we are writing the paper, we will be presented in a month or so in a conference. Mm -hmm. So she always tells me exactly what you're mentioning, that these dialogues about um, how to talk about these issues in a, is not... I mean, people have not paid attention. In adult education, a lot of the work has been done in, from K through 12. Absolutely. Maybe at the university level, mm -hmm. you know, but not necessarily in, in adult education, the way you mentioned today. And Absolutely. I think, I think that connection to the community, I think it's very important. I think, I think you and I resonate specifically on that, on how can we can contribute to that community. And uh, because at the end of the day, the work it's for them, right? You know, it's not necessarily for us. So we have mm -hmm. to open ourselves mm -hmm. and say, what is what we can do mm -hmm. to help you and help your life a little bit better? That's mm -hmm. why I believe in your, in your proposal of a community-oriented pedagogies, maybe mm -hmm. a little bit of the colonial or critical pedagogies, like uh, all of the above sure. related. And I think yeah. that's, that's, that's what I, I see mm -hmm. a lot of potential. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that being said about the potential, so you, I know you already hinted a little bit of the work that you hope to be doing here at the University of Toronto at OEC. Mm -hmm. What are the things that you're hoping to, to do in the, the coming years now that you're here? I know you're new. We have a lot of ideas mm -hmm. coming, but what are the possibilities that you see that could be happening mm -hmm. in your work here. Right, right. So uh, because I'm not from Canada, I'm definitely going to be orienting myself to this context, which is going to be really um, yeah. am amazing and, and full of so much learning. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I think this first year uh, is going to be a lot of kind of conceptualizing research, um, collaborating with different scholars here in Toronto and in other places. So. Um, Right now I'm conceptualizing a couple of different projects with um, some different people. Uh, for example, uh, Patrianne Smith in, mm -hmm. at USF, that's University mm -hmm. of South Florida, um, does a lot with uh, a novel concept, which I'd recommend to you to check out because I think you'd love it, um, called transracial linguistics. Mm -hmm. So she, yeah, and so she, she argues um, for um, kind of a, a, a re-theorization of the way that black immigrant youth and um, um, black American youth um, kind of use their literacies to navigate a white-centric world uh, and to kind of um, make space for themselves in the educational process as, as a political act. Um, and so I'm going to be theorizing um, some of that work uh, for the adult context here as well. Um, uh, in addition, I'm collaborating with a critical geographer in Sy uh, Syracuse University, mm. uh, thinking about language practices um, in, in queer spaces, actually. Um, and um, how space is generated basically through our language practices. And so for you, I'm sure, I'm sure you've also looked into this too in terms of mm -hmm. language learning, language practices, multilingualism, the way we position ourselves as languaging people um, and what kinds of community we create. 
Um, I'm really interested in questions of safety, questions of belonging and membership, um, and um, really thinking about centering voices and uplifting voices that have been typically invisibilized under kind of this savioristic sort of like, let me show you the way to liberate yourself <laughs> kind yeah, of no, perspective. No, no, I, I hear you, I hear you. Yeah. There's a lot of work to be done. A lot you of know? good work to be so done. We need, more, we need more like you in this field. Oh, thank you. I, the others. <laughs> well, you know, as a white person and uh, as somebody who is privileged and has power uh, given to me and I've, I've lived through the lens of a powerful position, right. there's a lot of ongoing daily work that I need to do to be really be aware of the force I exert. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of my commitment is really just asking myself on the daily, like, True. what am I reading? What am I thinking about? And who am I, what relationships am I building to change this um, white supremacist lens that we all have right. to look through or be the objects of? Something that it got me thinking uh, in the last little bit of what you said, um, and I don't know much about this. Uh, I am a cisgender straight guy, and you mentioned the, the, the working with the, in queer spaces, and I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Lance McCready, who works here. Of course, here. absolutely. He's so, one of my mentors here. Okay, yes. you go. that's yep. good. I'm glad that you're talking about him, yes. because I was thinking that specific area is not well explored, and mm -hmm. I'm assuming it's not well explored in the adult education. I don't think as well explore that's that's exactly what I think that's a good niche, that's a good area that you're gonna bring, but because I don't know and you may know more than me, what have you seen in that area of uh, creating queer spaces or queer theory of queer uh, education in adult education mm -hmm. if you have seen something or nothing that you know that's a great question I actually haven't seen scholars doing that specific work yet in terms of adult education pedagogy adult learning mm -hmm. what I have seen is more in the realm of multilingualism yeah. um, and that's and that's even just starting out too um, you know there there are relatively few queer and especially non-binary uh, mm -hmm. linguists mm -hmm. and like sociolinguists critical linguists um, uh, I think education scholars more broadly too, but there are very few people that have yet to get into that territory of thinking about, um, you know, what does it mean to develop a community um, through language practice, essentially. Um, and so, you know, I, th I think it's still siloed. I think we're still talking about, you know, as, as I'm sure you know, the sort of ethnic ethnic studies, for example, or queer studies or feminist studies often tend to be kind of shunted off into a very important, very critical, important area, but kind of crossing over into the applied interdisciplinary territory of education, because education is an applied science, it's an applied field. Those crossovers are starting to come over in some interesting ways when it comes to the queer community. No, interesting because you know, I'm always pro-bending the rules and bending all this, the, whatever is necessary cool. uh, for social justice, as mm -hmm. you may know by now. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so what I have tried to do in the work that I do with the teachers, and especially with these teachers I've been working with for a while in the ESL, adult education, mm -hmm. because they because there is no such thing as, 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 as the, uh, queer theory or, or talk about this. So what we try to do is to incorporate within the framework of social justice, incorporate the idea of gender and gender diversity and all of those in the ESL. Mm. So the adult students, they know that there is not only one or the other. Right. But we live in Toronto, in Canada, mm -hmm. and we are welcoming communities to all the, that gender diversity that sometimes mm -hmm. 
when immigrants come to the country, mm -hmm. they come with their own culture, and sometimes their own culture does not necessarily accept this gender diversity. Absolutely. And I believe our role as researchers and educators, and especially those, my friend who is in the, in the adult ESL, she believes that her role is to open the space and create the, uh, create, I think it's create the awareness for the adult ESL students mm -hmm. that we need to respect all the types of diversity, despise right. of uh, you believe. Because we respect your belief, whatever, where you, whatever you're coming from, whatever it is, Islam or Christianity right. or Buddhism or you name it, mm -hmm. it it's, it's important mm -hmm. to acknowledge where you're coming from. But it's also important to acknowledge that there are other forms of gender diversity or different forms of families. Absolutely. You know, she has a... She has a, uh, a lesson to talk about families. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's one of the most difficult ESL lessons because people come with this traditional view that a man and a woman and a baby, that's mm -hmm. a family. Mm -hmm. But if you have two men or two women right. or three women or, or the whole community or the children. whole community sure. raising, as you said, educa educando mm -hmm. the children, Right? right. So, and sometimes they, they they are taken out of their own comfort zone, saying, "Oh, so you mean like three women can bring a child? Yes, or two men? Yes, that also can be, or a whole group of people as Absolutely. well can do that." And it's important to create the awareness. Um, they may like it or not, or may agree or disagree. But mm -hmm. I, we believe the role of the adult educator is to create the awareness, not only for gender, but for anything, race, and anything. But in this case specifically, so I think. Your work, and I hope the future of your work in this work sort of opens the space for these uh, conversations of uh, also gender and race. Absolutely. Well. Thank you. Yeah, I, I hope so. I, I appreciate all of your ideas because I, I feel like this really resonates with my, with my goals and my plans. Nice. Um, Katie, is there anything else that you want to add to today's conversation that you felt like you needed to say and you didn't say that you have your notes there? I have my maybe, notes here. <laughs> maybe you want to say a lot of things that I never asked. Do you think it is important? That's a great, great final question. I would, uh, so I think one of the questions you asked me is if I had any readings or research or resources for the audience to follow yeah, up yeah, on. Definitely. So I would probably just say uh, a final project I have in mind is to try to push against this idea of academic authority. That's something mm -hmm. I'm really excited about. Mm -hmm. So I would just say, um, you know, if, if your listeners as academics, scholars, um, you know, writers, whoever they are, uh, learners, um, you know, I'd say keep an open mind about who is supposed to be the expert on anything. You know, I mean, it's it's as you and I are talking about this today, I love that we're negotiating the space in and of itself and we're saying, what do we know? What don't we know? What do we believe? How, what stance are we taking around this kind of stuff? So I'd say a final point I, I want to make and I'm going to push for in my position is really to, to expand outwards and to change this definition of expertise, authority, um, because there's so much stuff that is left outside because it's considered to be um, you know, non-standard or uneducated or, you know, all of, all of these terms we can attribute. Well, definitely. Thank you so much for those last uh, words uh, for our audience. I do believe in what you're saying and do agree with questioning and challenging the idea of authority and specifically the academic authority. In the work that I do, and I hope the work that you also do, is precisely challenge that and push back a little bit who is who and who has the knowledge and who has the right to have whatever knowledge. I think children 
you know, families, grandmothers have different types of knowledges that, that need to be also acknowledged. And they are the authority yeah. in my house. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My grandma has the authority. Of course, la abuelita. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, so it's time to start bringing those knowledges into the conversation in the academic uh, spaces as well. Yes. You know, mm -hmm. like everybody should be welcome here, not because I, I got a degree and I have a doctorate from the University of Toronto. I know better than you. Absolutely. And those are the, 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 the boundaries and the, the, the rules that need to be bent. And Absolutely. thank you for coming and help me out to, to bend those rules. And then we hope to see you in the near future or hear the work that you do. And we'll see you next time. My pleasure. Nice talking to you today. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, my name is Jacinto Ortega, and this is Chasing Encounters. Have a good rest of the week, everybody.